0: Good morning. morning. Would you stand, open your Bibles up to Hebrews chapter 9? We're going to look at that chapter this morning. I'm going to read a few of the verses. We'll do a little short um, reading together, and then we'll pray and get into the text. So in Hebrews 9, the service and the sanctuary, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Psalm 117 is the shortest Psalm in the Bible. It's a part of the Hallel Psalms, which we'll mention as we're going through this text. I thought we'd just both We'll all read this all together, responsibly. Here it goes. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples. For his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Everyone said, praise the Lord. So, Lord, we do praise you. You are worthy of all praise, honor, glory. We give to you our attention. We ask, Lord, that... You would grant to us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. In the things that i prepared, break them fresh. Feed us, we are hungry. We want to know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. We want to draw near to you. We want to have our lives reflecting the work that you want to do. And we're praying, again, just for a yieldedness to your Spirit in our minds, in our hearts this morning to receive the engrafted word which is able to save our souls, able to change us from the inside out, able to sanctify us for your glory, because Lord, we know this life is short, and we want to live it out full tilt in serving you. So please bless this time in your word now, in Jesus' name, everyone said amen. amen. You can be seated. So in Hebrews 7, we looked at Jesus' forever, and the whole whole of the book of Hebrews really can be summed up because he always lives Jesus' priesthood is absolute, perfect, and permanent. And as we sh- I've shared before, we do, we do a pretty good job. of remembering we've got to go to the cross with our sins, but how about going to the high priest, s- the, the throne of grace, where we receive uh, God's mercy and grace to function in the life today. Amen? So hopefully you're, you're, you're thinking some things through as the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. So this better covenant that he talks about in chapter 7, is the focus of Hebrews now 8, 9, and 10. In Hebrews 8, the better covenant, we looked at that last week, Jesus is the main point. And as this quote goes, John Corson, the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing, and that is Jesus. Can you say amen to that? The main thing. Jesus is not only the main point, he's the minister of the better covenant, he is the mediator of the better covenant. We looked last week, the first covenant finding fault under that, not the covenant itself, but Because of sin, the law points out sin. We also looked at finding a future in the new covenant. This new covenant now is what we're we're learning about. So in Hebrews chapter eight and verse 13, if you look in your Bibles there, he closes chapter eight with this statement. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So I want to emphasize or reiterate again what I shared last week. Choosing to actively exercise faith in believing in Jesus, the minister and mediator of the new covenant. Choosing to actively exercise faith in believing in Jesus, the minister and mediator of this new covenant is the only way the old covenant will become obsolete, grow old, and vanish away. In other words, we're battling a lot of things. We're battling this whole, the the natural tendency is to go back and earn whatever it is from God. We're learning in the new covenant, he paid the price for all of it. We enter in by faith. We walk with him by faith. We have our eyes on him by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, I'll talk about that in a moment. Now look at what chapter 10 ends with these verses. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence which has great reward, For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. I say amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Hebrews 11, 1, now faith is the sudden things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So this active exercise of faith is the focus in chapter 11. In fact, the word faith is used 37 times in the book of Hebrews. 25 of those are in, the book, in Hebrews chapter 11. So I, I'm looking forward to our tour of the of the hall of faith in chapter 11. But we've got 8, 9, and 10. We We've did 8 today, this morning, 9. These are preparing us to get to chapter 11, where we begin then to understand how powerful our faith is. And how necessary it is to believe and to continue to believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So he says, now faith, I like that. It's not yesterday faith, it's not tomorrow faith, it's now faith. It's what's going on now. and We'll get to that in chapter 11. Living by faith and believing Jesus Trusting Jesus to continue his ongoing work in our lives by faith, by coming to the throne of grace, that we attain mercy, find grace to help in time of need, all the things that were leading up to this in Hebrews is so powerful. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And he gives example after example after example. And you look you look at some of those guys and they say, How did he ever make it into the hall of faith? Like Samson. I mean, he was an but I mean his ending well, anyway so here the writer is continuing now in these contrasts he's contrasting the two covenants by now contrasting the earthly service and sanctuary with the heavenly service and sanctuary so a little outline if it helps you the service and the sanctuary number one the earthly services were divine the earthly sanctuary was symbolic but then secondly, the heavenly service is eternal. The heavenly sanctuary is eternal. We're talking about eternal things because we're talking about the eternal, son, the eternal God whom we know and worship. So the earthly services. So in chapter, verses 1 through 5, he talks about the, this earthly sanctuary, the tabernacle was prepared. Now he says there, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. If you don't mind, I'd like to give a little detail. And we came into the book of Hebrews. Actually, what spurred us in the book of Hebrews was because we just studied Exodus. We looked at these kinds of things. So I want to revisit that a little bit this morning because what we're seeing symbolically is absolutely incredible. And it should be. It's God. And he gives these pictures over hundreds of years to ingrain in our hearts his promised Messiah and the salvation, the redemption and salvation that is ours by faith in him. But he's laying down this groundwork through the law, the tabernacle. And so he says the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, verse 8. So let's look at this tabernacle a little bit. Here's the picture of it. You remember that? So, and then inside, I got my little pointer here. This is so much fun. So this is the, the tabernacle complex, okay? The courtyard that surrounded the tabernacle was 150 feet by 75 feet. This room is about 75 feet by 120. So get a little idea. It's a very small place for a million people, but this is what it was. This is the center of their, of their social life and their spiritual relationship with God. So the tabernacle, the sanctuary, was 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. That's about the size of this stage, if you put it out. The first part was the holy place, which is right here, a 30 by 15 by 15 tall ceiling. It contained, as we read in the the verses, it contained the lampstand, table of showbread, and the altar of incense. Behind the altar of incense was a very thick veil, right there, which is the one that was, remember that, torn in two from the top to the bottom when Jesus died on the cross, opening the way to God's presence. So the altar of incense was very behind it. This very thick veil was held up by four golden columns resting in silver sockets. The second part, the Holy of Holies was 15, was a 15 foot cube. It contained the Ark of the Covenant box of acacia wood overlaid with gold. That contained the stone tablets, the jar of manna and Aaron's rod that budded on top of that little box, two by two, two by three or so. Set the mercy seat. This is huge, as far as God picturing for us Jesus Christ, our propitiation, or literally our mercy seat. It was made of acacia wood, overlaid with gold. Had on the top of it, listen, because this again is symbolism. It has on the top two golden angels, the cherubim, with their wings outspread, and they're looking they're, they're looking down on the mercy seat. These two angels, golden. Now the only place in this whole. Uh, Tabernacle complex. The only place the people could go was in the courtyard. Never here. And so that the only place the people go is the courtyard where the sacrifices are offered by the priests at the at the bronze altar. That was it. Only the priests, the priesthood could go into the first part, the holy place, to perform the services, which would be filling the lampstand with oil morning and evening to keep it going, changing the showbread every Sabbath on the table of showbread, and replacing the incense on the altar before the veil. The only person, in verse 7 of our text, that could go into the second part, holy of holies, was was the high priest. That's it. The only time he could go into the Holy of Holies was once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which, by the way, is coming up October 4th and 5th uh, this year. Still celebrated. When Jesus walked on the earth, the high priest would take one week to prepare for the Yom Kippur with fear and trembling. He's seriously getting himself ready, knowing he would be entering the Holy of Holies. They understood very well how, how, <laughs> how serious that is. So in Hebrews 9, 7, it says, But into the second part the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins, notice, committed in Ignorance. So he's this offering this day of atonement is dealing with all sin known and unknown completely. So the day of atonement no other priests except the high priest he's on his own. He washes himself puts on linen garments the tunic the trousers the sash and the turban. He would never ever think of ever offering anything without blood. They understood the need for blood sacrifice. So what happened on the Day of Atonement? A bull was for a sin offering was brought to him. He laid his hands on it, confessed his own sins and the sins of his family. The bull was left momentarily at the bronze altar in the courtyard. Then two goats were brought to the high priest. Lots were cast for which would be the Lord's goat. And on that goat, there was a scarlet thread uh, tied to him. The other was called the scapegoat. Then the bull, his sin offering, was sacrificed. Its blood poured into a basin there at the bronze altar. He would then come back to the, excuse me, the high priest would take the coals from the altar, put them into a censer, take some of the specially prepared incense, and go into the Holy of Holies. So he'd leave, he'd go into the Holy of Holies, And there he placed the incense on the burning coals before the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. Now, this is is a, a ceremony, the service people are observing, but this is something God is giving to us, pictures, symbols. So, he would then come back to the bronze altar from the Holy of Holies back to the bronze altar take the blood of the bull and then go again into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood seven times on the mercy seat and seven times on the ground in the Holy of Holies. After returning to the bronze altar, he then took the Lord's goat and sacrificed it, take its blood and return again into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle its blood before the mercy seat. the congregation would watch as he then took the blood of the bull and the blood of the Lord's goat and sprinkle the blood on the bronze altar and on the horns of the altar. Finally, now this is providing the high priest had not been struck dead because he wasn't prepared and they put bells on the bottom of their, of their garments so if the bell stopped ringing he had a cord around his foot and he'd drag him out of the hole nobody's going in there So he would then the scapegoat was then the scapegoat was then brought forward The high priest would lay his hands on his head confess his own sins and the sins of the people He would then say bear and be gone And it would be led into the desert and released The priest would, who led it would watch until it disappeared from sight. Then he, that priest, would tell the next priest, who would tell the next priest, until they got back to the high priest. And here this great moment of all this ceremony takes place. Because the high priest would announce, forgiven, your sins are forgiven, and they are departed from you. <laughs> Beautiful. Divine. It's a picture of forgiveness, yes, but much more than that. It's a picture of bearing away, removing the sin, both known and unknown. I want to say to you here for a moment, God the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ would say to you, forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. That's the culmination of the picture. Your sins are forgiven. They are departed from you. The people would then break out in singing the Hallel Psalms. Psalm 113 through 118. And there would be rejoicing. And every year, year after year, this ceremony for this solemn assembly was performed. Year in and year out. A very special, sober, somber, celebratory service, ceremony, sanctuary. But let's go on. The Holy Spirit indicating this, verse 8, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic of for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him perform the service perfect. How in regard to the conscience concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. It was symbolic of what? that the way in the holiest of all was not yet made manifest until the time of reformation. What is that time? It's the new covenant. It's Jesus coming in the fullness of time to put in place everything needed for this new covenant to be ours by faith. A taunt means a covering. This service is symbolic. Every, even the high priest with all of his preparation in foods and drinks, washings and fleshly ordinances or earthly ordinances, his conscience remained, he was reminded in his conscience something still was needed. The law could not do, those ceremonies could not do what only Jesus did. The service in and of itself was not adequate. The service in Tabernacle made it perfectly clear. So this whole service, this tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the the Holy Place, it made it perfectly clear that there's still not a way into the presence of God, in the Holy of Holies. All these sacrifices, the gallons and gallons of blood poured out and applied to the mercy seat. The altar could not bring a sinner behind the veil. Every day, every year was a reminder that the way in the holiest wall was not yet there. It was barred. Inaccessible. And God in his loving wisdom and mercy took hundreds and hundreds of years to drill that in until he would come in the fullness of time. Born of a woman, born under the law that he might redeem those who are under the law. That's you and me. Job, you know Job, right? He expressed his heart cry for the presence of God as he struggled to understand his sufferings. It's true for us too. We cry out for the presence of God. As we struggle in the sufferings of this world that are not worthy to be compared with the glories which shall be revealed. So in the book of Job is laid out where Job is asking and he's wondering and he's wrestling. And if you've ever read the book of Job, you get that. It's, it's, it's a difficult course he's taken through to give us an understanding of God in our sufferings. So in Job 9.33 says, Nor is there any mediating between us Who may lay his hand on us both? Who's going to do that? The greatest human need remained unmet. I I want God. I want to connect. Job 14, 14. If a man dies, shall he live? What a question. The greatest human question remained unanswered. Job 23, 3. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that the Lord might come to his seat. This happens all the time for us. Where's God in this? His presence. The greatest human problem in Job's mind at that point remained unsolved. Even righteous Job. If you read this man, he was a righteous man, incredible. Even Job knew in his conscience something more was needed. It's the conscience that this chapter is talking about. Our conscience before God. Remember Rex the dinosaur in Toy Story? He realized that he was wrong, accusing Woody of trying to destroy Buzz Lightyear. And so he says, great, now I have guilt. Oh, great. I have guilt. (laughs) Listen, when we do something wrong, we experience guilt. That's not a bad thing. Guilt causes alienation, a sense of a need to make something right, lest I be punished, lest I bear, lest I have to experience the consequences. Someone said conscience has been succinctly described as the soul distinguishing between what is morally good and bad, prompting to do the former and shun the latter. The best illustration that I've shared before is that of the conscience being a triangle. Sharp edge, sharp corners, and it sits in our hearts. Whenever we, as long as we're doing good, doing what's right, it just it doesn't turn. But when we do something wrong, it begins to turn. And the corners hurt the heart. But if we keep doing wrong and keep doing wrong, the corners start to wear off to where it doesn't hurt anymore. What a great description of our conscience. Our conscience are God-given. They convict us in bearing witness to God's truth. They testify to us of our conduct and, as it, and how it lines up with that truth. It's amazing how clearly a guilty conscience shows up on the faces of our little ones. What are you doing? <laughs> you, something, yeah. But we as adults, you know, when I was a child, a guilty child, my dad would give me some applied psychology on my hind parts. The Bible tells us, don't spare the rod. You see, the need is in the heart. And in younger lives, the only thing that will reach the heart is pain. And God gave us a nice padded place in which to apply that to get to the heart. And so when that heart, when that, when that discipline is applied, the guilt is removed. When we disciplined our children growing up, we would ask, we'd say, what did you do? you're going to get two swats. No, no, just one. This is two. (laughs) And when we're all done, and this is privately with them in the room, say, okay, it's over, it's done. And there's a freedom that would come because the conscience knows what's right and wrong. A good conscience, a pure conscience. Now, the Bible talks about a lot of different consciences. That's a whole nother study. Because a good conscience can be rejected. And we often do. There's a weak conscience, a defiled conscience, a seared conscience, an evil conscience. The Bible says has a lot to say about all that. I have notes here. If you want them, I'll send them to you. But this is one thing that will remain fixed concerning the conscience. It is this. No earthly service or earthly sanctuary can ever make a way into the presence of a holy God. It indicating a way has not been made, symbolic, until the time of reformation. If there is no until in this passage, then all the time in all the world will never be enough time to solve the problem of sin, guilt, and separation from God. That required Jesus, our great high priest. The old covenant was a reminder and reinforcer of sin and guilt and separation from God until the time of reformation. The Hebrew writer is taking the turn, if you will, until the time of the new covenant, until the time that Jesus came, there was, this access was not there. The heavenly service then is eternal. The heavenly sanction, we're talking about the eternal God. Jesus came as high priest to mediate the new covenant. Christ came as high priest, verse 11. Greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. As we continue through this passage this morning, there are two key words that I want to draw attention to as we do. Blood is one of them. Five times in Hebrews, three times in chapter 9. Excuse me, blood, I'm thinking of eternal. Blood, 21 times in Hebrews, 12 times in chapter 9. So I want you to pay attention as we just read through the passage. The second one is eternal, connected to the blood. Five times in Hebrews, three times in chapter 9. Eternal. Let me tell you about the eternal side of it. In Hebrews 5, 8, 9, this is the first where it appears. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, Jesus became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He is the author of eternal salvation. Secondly, Jesus suffered to become that. Secondly, in Hebrews chapter 6, he says... There's going to be, Jesus said it, there's going to be eternal judgment. That's what Jesus said. After this, the judgment, Hebrews 6, or 9 rather, verse 27. Now in Hebrews 9, 12, third time, not with the blood of bulls and of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. Eternal salvation, eternal judgment, eternal redemption. With his own blood, he obtained that. Hebrews 9, verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The eternal spirit. Now in these two verses, we have the whole of the eternal Godhead. Hi, honey. It's my granddaughter. I love you. Where was I? It's almost like I walked through the Holy of Holies. Don't <laughs> Hello? All three persons of the eternal Godhead had their place. God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. This is eternal. This is eternal transactions. This is eternal redemption. This is eternal salvation. So he says, cleanse your come from dead works to serve the living God. What are dead works? He says in verse chapter 6, verse 1, let us go on to perfection, not laying again, the foundation of what? Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Dead works are partnered with faith toward God. Repentance. Dead works are sinful. That's why they need to be repented of. I suggest two, two dead works t- uh, titles. The first one is lifeless works. They're dead. That would be my own works that cannot save me from my sin, that cannot provide for my forgiveness, that cannot redeem me. My works, dead, lifeless, powerless. The second would be the works that can lead to death, which are the works of the flesh, sin, that can kill me. Now, if you don't think so, it's very clear in the scriptures all over the place. But let me give you one of the what I call the ugliness in Galatians chapter 5. Now the works of the flesh are these, are evident, which are adultery, fornication, and let me stop a moment. When Jesus gave us the true depths of what this means, he said, it's not the outward, it's the heart. So if you look after one with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. It's a heart issue. That the law exposes. And Jesus made it very clear. So here we are. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions. uh, Is it not an ugly list? Jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I have also told you in time past. That those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. A lifestyle unchanged is a lifestyle unsaved. Dead works are cleansed by faith in Jesus' finished work through repentance. A change of mind that has a change of direction that has a changed life. Repentance. Now here's what he's bringing out here. Dead works once cleansed by the blood of Jesus radically changes how we serve God, how we serve the living God, that freedom and boldness and courage and that God gives to us by forgiving our sins and putting them as far as the east is from the west, bearing them out, gone, no longer. In 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote this to to the Corinthians and they had a lot of problems, so Paul addressed them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, he says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. So Paul writes this letter, a stern letter. He's rebuking them. He's correcting them. and saying, this is sin. A father, a, a son's laying with his father's wife or whatever that was. And he's addressing lots of things. And he's saying, you know, I, didn't, I, I sent it. You ever feel like that? You send something, you go, oh, I wish I never put that email. <laughs> Paul's going, I... I, it was hard, it was instructive, but I, I wasn't sure. But he said, I, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive, why, didn't he, why did he understand? He began to say, it was good that I wrote that. It was good that I said that. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry. Though only for a while, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to Repentance. For we you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. They receive the, we need the correction and the chastening of the Lord. And we need to be able to speak the truth in love and have a relationship such that the things that we're seeing in someone that we love, we're going to say, you know what, I, I don't know what's going on here, but let me ask you something. And those are not fun conversations many times. But Paul said, I am so thankful I wrote it. He says, for godly sorrow produces what? Repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. I have never regretted a time when convicted of sin in my own life and I had godly sorrow. And I was sorry about it before God. Not sorry I got caught, but I realized this is and God forgave me. I was clean. And you walk away from that. There's no regret. And so for someone to correct me is no regret of that because you realize they're seeing something I'm blind to. The heart is deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But the Lord says there, I the Lord searched the heart. How does he do that? Sometimes he does that in our fellowship, our conversations many times he's doing that in the quietness of moments in his word the quietness of something in worship during church or a word that might i might be speaking. Of, some, but somehow the holy spirit is on it <laughs> faithfully because his desire is that we be conformed into the image of jesus christ and the door to freedom is the door of repentance the draw, door to forgiveness is the door of repentance the door to freedom and all those things is to repentance so Paul says, for observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produces. It's radically different. It changes everything. And I would say it starts, all of us know this. It started when we came to the cross and said, Jesus, would you please forgive me of my sin? Radically changes our lives. And it did. And God would have that continuing for us. Another time, Hebrews 9, verse 15 now. And for this reason, he, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, talking about eternal in blood, by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of what? The eternal inheritance. It's worth it. Jesus died to mediate the promise of our eternal inheritance. Jesus is the eternal God who has done all these things. So when Jesus was about to go to the cross, John 17, he spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him, given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, Jesus, to the Father. This intimacy before he's going to the cross. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work you have given me to do. And now, O oh, Father, glorify me with you, together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world. It's eternal. Eternity broke into time. So Jesus came as high priest to mediate the new covenant. Let me just reiterate those things I just shared. He suffered to become the author of eternal salvation. He said there will be eternal judgment. Jesus with his own blood obtained eternal redemption, purchased us. Jesus offered himself without spot through the eternal spirit. Jesus died to mediate the promise of our eternal inheritance. Jesus is the eternal God who has done all these things. Jesus became, then became the executor, executor, of God's will and testament. He laid down the terms for the forgiveness of sin, like it or not. So as you read verses 16 through 22, this new covenant, like the old covenant, was God's will and testament. God laid down the terms. He did not consult with men. He didn't have negotiations with man. And seeking, he wasn't seeking to come to some mutually acceptable agreement. God laid down the terms. All the arrangements were made by him. The beneficiaries, listen, the beneficiaries of God's last will and testament, we only need to accept the terms in receiving our inheritance. This eternal inheritance. The first thing Moses did was to proclaim the commandments to the people. He set out the terms and conditions of the covenant. He made plain the requirements so that there was no doubt in the people's minds as to his will and what it demanded of them. They are God's people and they must obey God's laws. Moses made that very clear. But then the second thing he did was to perform the rituals as God had prescribed them. It was not Moses negotiating with God, but proclaiming his will and his testament to the people. All from God. So I turn a corner. What about Jesus? (laughs) It's so incredible. Jesus lived to make it crystal clear the terms of God's will and testament. That's what he did. Some didn't like it very well. Some received. But then, Jesus died and put into force the terms of God's will and testament. The shedding of blood, the payment made apart from us. But then, Jesus rose from the dead and became the executor of God's will and testament. See, it's eternal. It's all God. Amazing, incredible, the symbol, symbolism and what Jesus did. He laid down his life to put away sin. Verse 23. It was necessary that Jesus' life be sacrificed, his blood shed, These are the terms, there are no other. Verse 24. It was necessary for Jesus to appear for us. He's not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. If he doesn't, we're sunk. These are the terms, there are no other. Verse 25. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But notice again, but now once, this is mentioned several times in Hebrews, once at the end of the age, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It was necessary for Jesus to appear to put away sin. These are the terms. There are no others. We could never do that. It was necessary. You can agree with it or you you might not want to agree with it. You may like it, you may not like it. But these are the terms of God's will and testament. So Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. How clear is that? John chapter 3. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he does not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. Lights come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Crystal clear. John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. One more, 824, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sin, sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Laid out the terms, made it crystal clear. Died to pay the penalty by which those who are condemned can be saved. And then he rose from the dead. He laid down his life to bear the sins of many, verses 27 and 28. It is appointed for men to die once after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. I say, amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. So here's the picture in closing. It's the picture in the scapegoat. Sins not only forgiven, but borne away. Thus it was Necessary for Jesus to rise from the dead. Just like the children of Israel waited to see the high priest come out of the Holy of Holies. If Jesus did not come back from the dead, how do we know if the offering was accepted? How do we know if the scapegoat took In 1 Corinthians, the resurrection chapter, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. It's vain. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. He goes on. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep, a picture of death to the believer in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If Jesus has not risen, listen, we have no other priest to send in. He's it. So at his death, the veil was rent from top to bottom. He came out, if you will, of the holy of holies and gave us complete access in through faith in him. But now Christ is risen and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Here's the final picture. Our Lord Jesus, wrapped in linen, emerges from the tomb on the first day of the week. What did the disciples see that morning? (laughs) They saw a place sprinkled with blood. They saw two angels at one each side of the bench. And those angels then declared, do not be afraid. He is not here. He is going before you, and you will see him. That's what they said. I had this moment a week and a half ago. I don't know where it came from or where it was going, but I think it came from the Holy Spirit. I was in my office. I'm reading my Bible, and this picture came. This thought came. I am going to see Jesus face to face. And he's had this moment. You know how it is to speak to someone face to face. That's going to happen with me and Jesus. With you and Jesus. We will see him. Wow. The eternal son of God becomes human, exalted. And we will see him. I'm getting excited. See, this is what he's picturing. This is what the symbolism. He's saying to us, because of the resurrection, our sin is forgiven. Our sin has been borne away. The sacrifice has been accepted. It was sufficient. It was adequate. When no others were. So my confession is sure, and my hope is secured through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Hebrews ends this chapter, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. I say, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and let's close and worship him in song and then I'll come and